when prisoners of war were, were captured, most of them were marched north um, into China. 22 American servicemen and one British serviceman are, are turned. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to today's episode of Cold War Conversations, where we speak with Dr. Grace Huxford, author of the Korean War in Britain, Citizenship, Selfhood and Forgetting. The Korean War was known as the Forgotten War, but it is key in understanding the early Cold War tensions and later repercussions that continue through to today. The equipment used in today's episode was kindly provided by our supporters who make monthly donations via Patreon. A special thanks to all of them. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Now, back to today's episode. The subjects we cover include the social impact within Britain, the UK view of the war, prisoners of war and brainwashing, as well as protests against the war. We met up in a cafe, so excuse some of the background noise, but I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Grace Huxford. Well, Grace, welcome to Cold War Conversations. Really appreciate having you along today. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's it's really great to, to talk uh, to Cold War uh, enthusiasts and, and specialists so I'm a, a social historian of, of modern warfare, I suppose is how I would describe myself. I'm based at the University of Bristol, uh, where I'm a lecturer in British history. And I teach on a variety of, of subjects relating to, to war and society, uh, but principally around Britain's Cold War. Um, I also specialise in, in oral history a bit as well. So, um, yes, teach on a variety of things. But I, would, I suppose I would describe myself first and foremost as a social historian of, of modern warfare. Okay, thank you for that. And how did you get interested in the Korean War specifically? So I suppose much like everybody else, um, I, I'm always struck by uh, the news stories that come up around, particularly around the communist state of North Korea. Um, and these news stories have been generated pretty much since 1953 the unofficial end of the of the war so much like a lot of people you know i was very interested in the in the the state and in how it regards the the wider world having said that though um, my training as i say is a i'm a social historian and i'm interested in how societies respond to war so even societies, as in the case of uh, Britain, uh, were 4,000 miles away from where the war took place. So I was, uh, I was interested in um, how the war impacted back in Britain, uh, not least because 40,000 British servicemen were involved in the war. Um, and I suppose as well, I was intrigued by, by the name, the, the Forgotten War. Um, how did such a important conflict in, in Britain's military history become forgotten. 
um, and why why don't we remember it as much as we remember other other modern conflicts? So I was intrigued, I suppose, by that disconnect as well. Okay, so tell us a, a little bit uh, about the book. So it's primarily a, a social and cultural history of the Korean War in Britain, and it's organised around six short chapters. The earlier chapters uh, address the very important uh, experiences of uh, the servicemen, British servicemen who were involved in the war. So that's both regular servicemen, um, that's national service conscripts, and also uh, what was known as K-Force volunteers as well. So the earlier chapters look at that military experience. It was a particularly harsh war career, um, and um, the experiences that people write about um, are really important, I, I think, to, to address. Having said that, uh, the other chapters of the book uh, take a wide-angle view of the, of the war in Britain, um, or the impact of the war in Britain. So I have chapters on... Uh, based on mass observation, the social survey mass observation, which was um, set up to, to gauge kind of public um, opinion and, and morale, um, set up in the 1940s, but um, used into the, into the 1950s. Um, so through that, I was able to, to write a chapter on the, the ordinary experience of the war as well. What did people in London think um, about um, the war? And then there's other chapters on protest, um, protesters and, and protest against the war, chapters on prisoners of war, um, and as I say, a chapter on the, the cultural memory of the war. Why has it been forgotten? Why is it known as, as the Forgotten War? Okay, I must admit I did find it interesting, particularly around the, the protesters and that sort of area. Mm. I wasn't necessarily aware of of some of that and the significance of how that sort of then followed on into campaign for nuclear disarmament and some of the characters there. I, I, I did find that interesting. But anyway, we will come on to that. So who, who would you say is your intended audience for this book? Because it's obviously it's published by University of Manchester Press. Yes. So is it an academic audience or is it a, a more general audience as well, would you say? I mean, I hope, I hope it would be interesting to, to both an academic audience and to a... Um, an audience that's interested in in the history of Britain's Cold War and particularly of the early Cold War period. Um, some of the the concepts that I'm exploring are quite um, they're quite in vogue in in the academic world as well. So selfhood, for example, a lot of post-war historians writing at the moment are interested in this concept of of selfhood, for example. And you'll have to explain. I think what, mm. what what does selfhood mean? Because I, I was intrigued by the sort of subtitle of the of the book because you talk about citizen soldiers and selfhood and some of these terms some people might not be familiar with. Sure. So um, the three the three subtitles of the book, yes, are citizenship, selfhood, and forgetting. Uh, the first one of, of citizenship is. In the post-war period, people talk a lot about citizenship. What does it mean to be a good citizen? Um, how, do you, how do you show that you're a good citizen? Are you active? Are you a passive citizen? Um, this is, you know, in political discussion, but it's also in media discussion. Um, it's something that even um, the, the army are interested in. So it's really a, a buzzword of the 1950s is, is citizenship. 
So I wanted to, to examine what that meant and what that meant to, to ordinary people as well. What does this concept of being a citizen mean? With selfhood, um, as I say, post-war historians are very interested in this concept and it's not always immediately apparent what it means um, when, it, when you first say it. I suppose a, a simple definition is how people view themselves. And historians are starting to argue that much like the history of technology changes over time or the history of gender relations changes over time, actually the history of how people regard themselves changes over time. How we view ourselves now is very different from how people viewed themselves in the 16th, 17th century, but even in the, even in the 1950s. So I suppose with the book, I'm, I'm testing that out a bit as well. Um, and it's particularly important when it comes to the history of, of concepts like brainwashing, which is a term that emerges in the Korean War, because that's all about the self. That's all about somebody believing something and then suddenly believing in something else. Um, so these are terms that people were, were thinking about in the 1950s um, and that I'm trying to use as well. But I also try and tell the story of Britain's Korean War as well. It's not all big concepts. Yeah, no, no. And I would, I would echo that. You know, I, I did find the book really, it really made me think because there were some aspects there that I hadn't thought about in terms of not just the Korean War, but conflict generally and serving in the army as well. It was, it was very thought provoking, I think is what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout roundabout sort Thank of you. way so the the sources you use for the book you mentioned mass observation which some people who are familiar with world war ii history will will be aware of but what other sources did you uh, get access to so i used um a deliberately wide angle um i suppose a wide angle lens on my on my sources as well so i looked at contemporary newspaper coverage of the war I looked at government records around the war as well, particularly on um, you know, things like prisoners of war. Um, I also was able to use um, material relating to war protest. So, for example, um, I went to the University of Kent, which holds the archival material of someone uh, called the Red Dean of Canterbury, Hewlett Johnson, uh, who was... Uh, a famous war protester actually he was very well known at this time and, and later becomes involved in the campaign for, for nuclear disarmament as well so I was able to look at letters um, and press coverage um, around some of these um, these quite charismatic figures that emerged during the Korean War as well uh, so a, a really a really wide range as well as of course um, material relating to the soldiers experiences so letters diaries um, oral history interviews that were recorded with um, senior officers in the 1980s and 1990s. I, I use those as well. Yeah, no, again, I mean, the, the whole protest element, I mean, I was fascinated by the story of Monica Felton mm. and uh, this seemingly um, innocuous town planner who suddenly becomes involved following a, a trip out with a local Labour Party, I think, to, to Korea. So recommend it for for. For that, I'm not going to tell too much of the story there because I'll, you know, I want people to, you know, buy buy the book as well. But some some great real gems there that probably wouldn't have come out of a general reading of of, of the Korean War. 
Mm. Um, so if, if we look at the book it, itself, I mean, I, I just want to just a few insights for, for people thinking of purchasing the book. Um, so, I mean, one of the areas you cover is how people react to the Korean War, because it was effectively quite close to World War Two. Um, I remember my father, who served in World War Two, saying that he he almost was called up for for Korea. So, how how did the general UK population react to the the outbreak of war in the circumstances? So, yes, as you say, um, the Korean War comes just five years after the end of the of the Second World War, and in the book, I try to emphasise how. That aftermath of war, war doesn't just stop in 1945. Uh, Britain is still dealing with the aftermath of war um, economically, politically, socially, um, and individuals as well. So in every chapter of the book, we come up against the memory of the Second World War. Um, so for soldiers, for national servicemen serving in Korea, for example, probably too young to have served in the Second World War, they are still aware, they're very aware of what their fathers, their brothers, their uncles did in the Second World War. So it's it's always there. Um, and um, by contrast, the Korean War is much more complicated. Uh, as I say, it's 4,000 miles away. Britain has fewer historic connections with Korea as well. Uh, there was an amazing series of talks that um, a Korean academic uh, did in, in Britain uh, in 1950. And the questions that she got, um, she wrote a book about it afterwards um, called Korea Through British Eyes. And the questions that people asked um, just went to show how, how little people knew about Korea, um, but also that they wanted to know more. There was, there was a real interest um, much like today, I suppose, when we, you know, um, when careers in the news, people are really keen to know more about about the history. So she talks a lot about about that, and I suppose in the book as well. I, it's a tricky question for Cold War historians, for all Cold War historians, I think, to gauge how genuine the fear was about, you know, it escalating into a global conflict or it affecting people back in in Britain. So it's. It's something that we really have to think about, I think, as, as Cold War historians. Because at the start of the Korean War, there is a sense of, of panic. Probably doesn't last beyond the first few weeks. Um, but in the mass observation surveys, for example, people talk about mass mobilization. They worry about people being called up again. Some people even mention having to redig their shelters and their gardens. And... It's, yeah, certainly for those first few weeks, there is, there is a worry about the war and whether it will escalate into another global conflict. Having said that, by 1953, uh, I think one newspaper columnist said that the, um, the English victory in the Ashes cricket tournament in 1953 occasioned much more celebration um, than, the, than the end of the war in Korea um, and that it eclipsed the end of the war in, in Korea as well. So... What happens in those in those three years? You go from this initial panic to, um, you know, a relatively um, quiet ending to the war. Yeah, and I was interested. It was under the aegis of the United Nations, and there was a lot of hope from people after the end of World War Two that United Nations was going to be a force for good. I just wonder what impact that had about people's feelings about the war that it was a good cause or 
I guess it's a difficult one because there was still a, lo a lot of left wingers in the UK. You know, the Communist Party was not a big force, but was more significant than it than it is uh, nowadays. And I've probably thrown in about three different questions there, actually. So I suppose on the on the UN, uh, both uh, both the Labour government that was in power at the outbreak of the war um, and Winston Churchill's Conservative government that comes into power in in 1951, both of those governments express um, the wish to support the collective ideals of the of the UN. And um, Britain actually is able to. There's a historian called Robert Barnes who's written a lot about Britain's relationship with the UN during the Korean War, um, and his work's very interesting. It's very interesting actually in 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 showing how how Britain's able to 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 actually display quite a lot of influence at the UN, particularly over its American partners. Um, but that it's it's a collaborative international effort. Uh, the Korean War, Korean War involves 21 nations are under the, the auspices of the UN doing different things. Some are military, um, having a military role. Others are um, more humanitarian um, support. Um, but it is a very international, international war. Mm. Okay. No, thank you for that. You talk about the, the concept of the citizen soldier and national service. Now, I get that when we talked about selfhood and citizenship, because obviously Attlee's government came to power, massive majority end of World War II, welfare state was built. Well, it was a socialist government. You talk about citizen soldier and national service. Is that one and the same or, or two different areas? That's a very good question. And I think something that people at the time were, were trying to grapple with as well. On the, on the surface of things, and you see this in... Um, Army Educational Corps discussions around the um, around this time, there was a hope that national servicemen could be some type of citizen soldier. Um, there's a lot of discussion about how a soldier needs to know why he's involved in a war in order to perform well in it. Um, and at the end of the Second World War, leading into you know this period. Um, there are lots of initiatives set up to encourage that. So the Army Bureau um, of Current Affairs, for example, these are local discussion groups um, in, in army units about current affairs. So there is this interest. Um, however, um, there's a great book by Richard Vinan called National Service. Um, and in it, he, explore, he, he says that the Korean War was the national service war. And actually, when you look at their experiences, whether they felt like citizen soldiers, um, you know, defending democracy, I think is another matter. Um, some, some talk about it. Some talk about it tongue in cheek. Others don't talk about it at all. So I think it's um, another instance where there's potentially a bit of a disconnect between some of the rhetoric around national service um, and how people actually on the ground feel about it. Yeah. Because the, the Malayan emergency was going on at the same time, and again, that's probably an even more forgotten Absolutely, <laughs> war, potentially, yeah. perhaps. That's the subject for another book of yours. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But um, I think, you know, it, it, and that was, again, national, you know, national servicemen being involved in that. But I think, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because there's a whole raft of conflicts going on around this period. I mean, if you include Palestine and the British Mandate, there there's a lot going on that 
people don't sort of recognize as cold war but there certainly are the early starts of the cold war perhaps palestine not but certainly malayan emergency against the communist insurgency and korea is cold is the early stages of the cold war absolutely and i think um there's another great book by um martin thomas called fight or flight where he talks about how the cold war is Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more is kind of bound up with decolonization as well this is a this is a really sort of tempestuous period of of history um and one i think that um has been overlooked and and particularly you know from the from the service personnel perspective these are really harsh wars as well um and reading you know the letters the diaries and you you see that so i think um and they're, you know, they're, they're harsh wars as well for the, um, the populations, the local populations. Korea in particular, there's one estimate that the North lost about 11% of its population during the war. And there are various other, other estimates as well. Um, they are particularly harsh wars. Um, and I think, um, albeit short ones, they are, you know, these small wars are, are really significant, I think, to both the Cold War and, and decolonization. Yeah. No, thank thank you for that. Now, one of the areas you talk about is British prisoners of war uh, during the Korean War. Now, I believe there was just over a thousand uh, taken prisoner. And that sort of brings in your what you mentioned earlier around brainwashing, which I was quite intrigued about because it becomes quite a common theme in uh, popular culture at the time with films like Manchurian Candidate and Ipcress File I think is is another one that that you mentioned and you see I've read the book I have done a bit you of homework have, you here. have <laughs> um, so can we can we start off with um, the brainwashing aspect so um, brainwashing as a term um, it has a a Chinese equivalent um, which was prevalent before the before uh, the Korean mm. War However, it's first used by an American journalist um, in 1950. There's doubts as to whether he was funded by the CIA, this, this particular journalist. But he uses it to describe the sudden adherence to a completely new uh, system of, of belief, essentially. So he... He first uses it in 1950, um, but it becomes used in 1951, 1952, to describe what's happening in Korea to prisoners of war. Because when, when prisoners of war were, were captured, most of them were marched north um, into China, um, around the banks of the, the Yalu River. And to varying degrees, they were subjected to what were called political re-education classes. 
And these were there's some amazing material that the National Army Museum holds on on these classes, and um, they were uh, political classes, historical classes about um, about world history, essentially, but very much through the Chinese communist lens. So, talking about American imperialism, and there's some yeah, there's some amazing material that that comes from from those classes, and. 22, out, 22 American servicemen and one British serviceman are, are turned, so to speak, um, during these classes. Now, I, pre- they... I presume you're not including George Blake in that, but no, we'll no. come on to him. We'll come on to him. Um, he's a slightly different character in that he's not a service personnel, but he is also allegedly turned during the um, during the Korean War. Whether again, whether they are or not, whether they have longer standing grievances is something we can we can talk yeah, about. Yeah, we could spend another hour probably could, talking about we? that. Yeah. But this term brainwashing becomes very popular to describe this this sudden change of, of belief system, particularly as you say, after the war. And it really takes off in the nineteen sixties. We see, as you say, the Ipcris file, we see um, a whole host of films and novels that that use this term brainwashing. And people still use it today, the term brainwashing. Um, I think not realizing that it is itself a cold war term created during the cold war um and some historians have say it's a bit of a, a bit of a lazy shorthand to describe this sudden change of viewpoint um but it's got a fascinating cultural history the term itself yeah yeah, yeah no absolutely and you know you me- you mentioned about what what i described in my notes as the stay behinds um and one solitary royal marine andrew condren is is the only one that stays behind but then he returns back to the uk i think in the early 60s can you just give me a little bit more about his story so um as a historian called paul mckenzie who's who's written about um condren in in great detail as well he's an interesting character um he did an interview, actually, that's freely available through the Imperial War Museum online archive. Um, so your listeners might find it interesting to, to listen to that I'll, themselves I'll make as sure well. we put a link up uh, to that in the show notes. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting um, story. And, and he describes it. He says he was, he was intrigued. He was interested in, in knowing what was happening in communist China. Um, and so at the end of the war, he decides to, to stay. And there's various notes in the, in the National Archives about this. It, it, it causes, um, alarm. Um, but as I say, he's only one serviceman. He comes back to the UK in the 1960s. Um, he's becoming more disaffected with, with China. Um, and various family circumstances mean that he wants to come back to the UK. And there's lots of discussion about whether he should be court-martialed. Um, whether he should be tried for treason, all of these sorts of things. He's not in the end, um, but he is uh, interviewed um, by uh, military authorities when he comes back. Um, and in the oral history interview with the Imperial War Museum, he talks he talks about that. Um, so yes, um, and he, I think, I believe he wrote about his experiences as well. So quite a quite an individual. Um, sort of character as well um but a a very interesting um story too yeah no absolutely because i think there's there's a worry you mentioned in your book a worry about a um a british officer who sort of doesn't he returns back but doesn't really get some of the promotion that he probably would have done because there's some almost suspicion about 
whether he's been turned as well, particularly after the revelation of Blake. Absolutely. So George Blake, um, an intelligence officer working in, in Asia, is, um, is found out to have been um, a double agent for, for the Soviets after the Korean War. He's imprisoned during the Korean War, and often people see this as um, the moment where he became interested in, in communist ideas and started to become a double agent. He's a fascinating person as well and has written an autobiography about, about his experiences and his motivations. But in the British intelligence community, but also within the, the government as well, there's, there's worry about um, how somebody like Blake was able to, to access this material and, and to go undetected. So part of a wider history, as we know, of, of double agents in, in the Cold War. A subject very close to our heart on Cold War conversations, Absolutely. I must say. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so after after Blake is discovered um, and he later um, has a dramatic escape from Wormwood Scrubs prison, um, which is very interesting to read about, there's um, uh, a recommendation called the Radcliffe recommendation that the, the government bring in, um, which stipulates that somebody who's been held captive, um, I can't remember the, the exact um, period of time, but for if you'd been held captive for a series of, of months in a communist setting, um, you had to um, have various um, extra sort of vetting procedures brought in. Um, and yes, as you say, some people felt that that, that held them back in terms of promotion. Um, not in terms of the numbers, there weren't that many people that were um, that were affected by this by the by the later 1960s. Um, but yes, it's certainly part of the the aftermath of the of the war. Is is this worry about? I don't think they would have used the term brainwashing um, because it by the 1960s became quite a, a sort of cultural buzzword in the end. But they were worried about this this change. You talk in your research about certainly the British soldiers believing that the US soldiers are not able to deal with hardship as much because they've not lived through, you know, bombing of the homeland and austerity and rationing and that they're more almost more susceptible to luxuries and things like that to try and induce them to... Uh, not necessarily provide information, but I'm, I'm not describing this very well, but you know where I'm going. I, mean. I know what you mean. The British servicemen at the time talk about something called give-up-itis, which is um, used to describe your your sort of fortitude um, and your um, ability to withstand the, the privations of captivity. So they talk about and they say that a lot of the younger American servicemen have not lived through post-war austerity they've not lived through wartime rationing many of them have been living um rather nice lives in post-war japan um and there's certainly a belief among the british um uh servicemen um that that they're somehow less less hardy um of course a wild generalization um, and of course not all british uh, personnel felt that way about their american counterparts but there is an interesting sort of sub-story here about um, I suppose what the special relationship looked like on the ground and, and how the troops in this very international war regarded one another. Um, there was great admiration for example of the, of the Turkish prisoners of war um, because they were seen as somehow um, yeah, more, more hardy. Um, so it's, it's an interesting element of the story. I and, think. You, and you forget those other, you know, that okay it's a forgotten war but when you start looking at it you automatically look at it through the prism of a uk 
and probably US side of, side of things, and you forget that there was Turkey involved and, and other countries of which I can't currently remember. A great deal. Ethiopia, Thailand, um, uh, the Philippines, you know, some um, countries that are keen to be involved in the UN mission, um, but, but have differing amounts of, of involvement. I think one, one of the things that I did find interesting was um, you mentioned the TV program MASH mm. and how that is set in the Korean War. But if you ask people, probably, and this is not a scientific number, but I would say 95% of them would probably say Vietnam War and not realize it was Korean War. Absolutely. There's a, a book by Charles Young um, about prisoners of war, actually, um, in, in America. And he talks about how particularly in the American context, Korea kind of falls between two stools, really. It's not um, as sort of morally unimpeachable as the Second World War. It's not a good war in that way. But it's not as bad a war as Vietnam, um, you know, where people are burning their draft cards and, and things like that. So it, it kind of falls between these, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not vilified and it's not praised. And as a result, that potentially led to it, it being forgotten. Yeah. Well, you've given me a great segue into my next question, which Excellent. is where I want to talk about the opposition in the UK to the war. Because as you say, OK, Vietnam there wasn't any direct British involvement, but there was a lot of protest in the UK. You've obviously got CND in the 60s around the Aldermaston marches and the protests against nuclear weapons. Um, but how much opposition was there in the UK to Korea? So the opposition to Korea was, I should say, quite small scale. And it was often done by quite charismatic individuals or small groups working together. So there's various um, British-Chinese friendship groups that are opposed to the war, um, various peace groups as well. So the historian E.P. Thompson is involved in a, in a peace group in Yorkshire. He writes a letter expressing um, uh, discontent at the way the war is being handled and, and calling to stop it. Some of these organizations are, you know, they're under the peace umbrella and many of them later become sort of influenced by, by the Soviet Union. Um, so they're not all sort of independent protesters. Having said that, there are some protesters who are, who are motivated individually to oppose the war. So I mentioned the Red Dean of, of Canterbury. Often going against, you know, the culture in the wider Church of England, he is, he is really campaigning against the war. He writes letters, um, he's vilified in the, in the newspapers. Um, he's since the 1930s, um, was very interested in the Soviet Union and made trips there and, and was, um, again, probably leaning towards sort of that, that sort of level of influence. But again, a, a very principled man as well, um, opposing, opposing the war um, for reasons that he, he, he felt were, were important. So um, there are these individuals. And you mentioned Monica Felton. Um, as you say, there's, there's more about it in the book. Um, but she is, um, she's a town planner in Stevenage and yet becomes, makes a trip to North Korea and becomes this... Um, the press call her, you know, this, that woman Felton, and they, they really, um, they really criticize her, and there's calls for her to be, you know, um, tried for treason, the, the punishment of which at the time was, was hanging. Um, so, 
um, these these figures are are, are hugely divisive, um, but very interesting for, from a historian's perspective. Um, and yes, the opposition is is small scale to the war, but um, it, it's kind of a forerunner to to the the other protest movements that you mentioned. So. Um, Hewlett Johnson, the Red Dean, becomes involved in the campaign um, for nuclear disarmament, as does E.P. Thompson. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a forerunner to those slightly more coherent um, peace, peace movements and, and opposition movements later in the Cold War. And what, what was the position of the Communist Party of Great Britain over the war? I presume they, they were in opposition. Yes, and... Um, as various bits in the book, I, I I have a section on on British communists and and the Korean War. There, I think there's a tendency to maybe exaggerate the number of British communists. They were not, you know, a, a very big organisation. However, they were um, they were quite prolific in the amount of material that they produced. I mean, the People's History Museum here in Manchester um, has the the Labour Party archive, but it also has the, the Communist Party archive. Um, and um, there's some very interesting material um, that the Communist Party produced, um, quite quite strongly worded, some of it, um, about the, the sort of, particularly about real strong anti-Americanism in, in some of their material. Um, and they opposed the war for slightly different reasons to humanitarians who are sort of highlighting how harsh this war is, the toll that it's taking on the Korean population. Um, but it, it's it's still yeah um, interesting as well. The war ends, but it's almost immediately forgotten. Or is that me just really paraphrasing? I think you're right. It is the the example that I used about the Ashes cricket tournament um, occasioning more more celebration. There's also um, the UN flag is raised in in Bury St Edmunds, and the, the uh, people in the town of Bury St Edmunds are slightly bemused by this and wonder why it's why it's there so it is it is partially forgotten i would say as well that it, there are there are pockets of remembrance so for example when uh, the gloucestershire regiment returned to um to southampton um british pathé are there they are filming them and they're trying to find out um what it was like for for the prisoners of war there are also local monuments that go up, largely driven by local veterans organisations. Um, so there is some remembrance, but it's it's nothing compared to um, the world wars. Um, and there, there's a sense of, um, particularly among the veterans, they describe themselves as forgotten veterans. So there is a there is a sense that one of the veterans says that you know there's no Sebastian Forks, there's no Louis de Bernier. Um, these novelists who write about modern war, none of them write about Korea. Um, so whilst there is local remembrance, um, and in 2014 there was a new national monument open to the Korean War on Victoria Embankment in London, certainly in the intervening years um, there, there was less than, than for the world wars, for the reasons we've, we've discussed. And so were, were any of the casualties from, from Korea recorded on local war memorials or were they even forgotten then? Yes, so um, in a town where I used to live, Leamington Spa, um, there was a, a panel added um, with a few people on there. Um, I would say it's, it's, not, um, it's not in all, all war memorials, certainly. Um, 
but some some um, towns and cities who were involved in these small wars, you do see addendum being added to to war memorials, um, and the the National Arboretum um, uh, has has a Korean War um, m- memorial as well. So um, in some places, yes, um, these other wars are are added. One thing I did want to ask you about was because I while, while I was doing the research for this, um, I found something about the 1952 intercamp Olympics, mm. um, which I think was a piece of research you, you you've done. Can you just tell me a bit about that? So that was that was very interesting again um, to to read about. So in 1952, um, the Olympics were being held in Helsinki, I believe, and um, Thousands of British and other, well, a thousand British prisoners of war and um, thousands of other nationalities of um, prisoners of war were being held in um, these these camps along the Yalu River in in China. And as part of a propaganda exercise, um, the the Chinese decide that they're going to hold their own Olympics using all these nationalities of of prisoners of war. They don't necessarily um, put nationalities against one another some of it is is you're representing your camp so there's a number of system of, of camps um but um it's this great propaganda exercise uh, british prisoners of war are involved um, so, uh, um british prisoner of war who's involved in the sprint relay and um and they produce this amazing um uh, brochure um that comes with it the the, the prisoner of war olympics um it seems to have been quite a fun day for those involved, um, but very much a, a propaganda exercise as well. And to show that they were treating the prisoners of war well. Uh, not all prisoners of war would have agreed that they were treated well. Um, but um, yes, it's a, a fascinating episode um, in, in propaganda. It, it, it sort of reminded me of that film Escape to Victory, mm. which I had, okay, it's not Korean War, but is is sort of... Uh, uh, a bit like that um of your research that you did for the book what was what would you say was the most surprising thing that came you know something where you thought wow i really didn't expect that or know that i didn't know uh, until i started delving deeper into the the cultural history of the of the war after the war uh, that uh basil faulty of faulty towers was supposed to have been a korean war veteran and he says to his wife, um, Sybil, at one point, um, oh, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm dangerous, you know, I killed four men in Korea. And she just says to a passing guest, oh, he was in the catering corps, he used to poison them. <laughs> so um, I didn't know that. Um, and I found that really interesting. I'll have to try and find that clip. It's, it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be on YouTube somewhere. I understand that we have a special Cold War conversation uh, exclusive deal on your book you where do. we have a uh, discount. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? So until I think it's the 16th of November, uh, podcast listeners to this podcast can get a 50% discount on the book. Uh, so if you go to the... That's five zero. Five zero. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What a great deal we've got there for you listeners. Absolutely. So, um, and thanks to, to Manchester University Press who've, who've arranged this. And if you go to their website, you'll find a catalogue of um, uh, all their books. Um, and you'll find my book there. And um, yes, simply enter when you get to the till section, enter into the discount in capital letters podcast. 
and then Cold War uh, Conversation podcast listeners can get their uh, their discount there. Fantastic. We will post a link to that on the show notes. So uh, don't worry if you didn't catch all of that, but just go to the show notes and get your 50% discount there. So completed this book. What's next for you? So I've just started uh, an oral history project. So that's where I, much like yourself, go around and interview people who, who've been involved in um, in Cold War history. My particular interest is the British Army of the Rhine. So, um, you know, this military force that was posted in, in West Germany um, and is still there, still there at the moment um, until 2020, um, British Forces Germany. Um, has a has um, various bases um, in the the northwest area. So my project is a social history again of British forces in Germany. So I'm looking to interview people who were service personnel serving there, but also their families, uh, people who grew up there as children, uh, support workers, all sorts of people that you know, teachers, chaplains that end up in these these amazing communities um, and really. Communities that, um, as I say, the bases are closing in 2020. So this is this is you know the end chapter of of, of that history, um, which again is another taken for granted element of of Cold War British history. I think sounds like we're going to have to have you on again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh no, that would that would be great. Sounds like a really interesting subject, and certainly something that our listeners will be um, interested in. Are there are there any museums that you would recommend uh, that people visit to better understand the Korean War? I think I'd recommend um, two museums. So the National Army Museum in Chelsea, in London, um, is an excellent um, museum. Recently uh, undergone a massive um, refurbishment. Um, and some very different uh, permanent galleries there. Um, but they have a very strong Korean War collection there. Um, and I used their Templar Study Centre, which is in the basement of the museum, um, to access a lot of my material. Um, and that's publicly accessible as well. You have to, to bring in various documents and, and sign up for a visitor card. But much like the British Library in London, um, if you're interested and you want to look at some of these, these primary sources yourself, um, you, you can do so. And the other one is uh, the Soldiers of Gloucester Museum um, in in Gloucester. Um, And that's particularly interesting because the Gloucestershire Regiment, um, the Glorious Gloucesters, are perhaps one of the most well-known elements of of the war. Uh, Their famous sort of last stand at at Imjin. Um, And the museum has a lot of material, both... um, both military and and some of the more personal individual sides of things. So there's a copy of Colonel Khan, who was um, the most senior British officer to be taken captive uh, during the war. Um, he was kept in solitary confinement for, for a lot of um, his time in captivity, um, which I imagine, you know, um, I don't think I could withstand that sort of um, solitary confinement. I think um, it's, it's certainly... Um, and he never really spoke about it after the war. However, he did carve um, a, a Celtic cross whilst he was there. Um, and that's now in Gloucester Cathedral. But the soldiers of Gloucester Museum have a copy of it um, and, you know, a segment about it. So there's some really interesting material that, that they hold as well. If you were a filmmaker and you had the budget, what real-life Cold War incident would you recreate on film and why? So I really enjoyed this question and it took a lot of thinking about um, and there were a number of things that I could have picked. 
Um, one of which, so my new project, as I say, is looking at the, the British Army of the Rhine, and they're involved in some massive military exercises, um, as are other NATO troops. So um, there's one, uh, Abel Archer, in 1983. Um, however, Deutschland 83, the, the TV program, beat me to it on that one, and they, they recreated Abel Archer um, in, in, quite a, in quite a good way. Well, you should check out my Abel Archer episode. Uh, I will. It's one of I the will. most popular episodes, that oh, one. excellent. So. Oh, I'll um, definitely check that anyway, one out. Anyway, I interrupted you while you were in your flow there. <laughs> well, I would probably then say, um, as, as Abel Archer has been, has been covered, um, there are other exercises as well. So uh, in 1984, the following year, uh, BOR involved in Exercise Lionheart. Um, and um, there are also other more everyday exercises. So um, in, in, in the British zone, but also in Berlin, things... Um, Exercises like Active Edge and um, Rocking Horse are called periodically to prepare um, troops for, for an invasion from Warsaw Pact countries. Um, so I'd probably recreate one of those because my oral history uh, participants have talked about them um, and they seem to have um, often come in the middle of the night um, and... Um, yeah, I would, I'd like to, to know more about that through film. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've always thought a sort of drama based around a possible Warsaw Pact invasion of Europe would be an interesting um, subject um, to mm. cover. But then nobody asked me what Cold War film I want to film. But. Has nobody asked you? Well, oh. no, I have to get somebody to interview yes, me. That, yes, that'll, oh. that'll be it. So uh, you're making your film about the Cold War. What piece of music would you have as the soundtrack? Again, this... There were a number of songs that I could have picked for this, um, but um, there's a great album by a band, an American band called The National, and they have a song called Start a War, um, which is um, got a great line, uh, walk away now or you're going to start a war, and it's a really good song anyway, um, so I'd probably have that as the background. It's, uh, it's a good song. Oh, I've not yeah. heard of that. I'll be uh, <laughs> trawling YouTube for, uh, for that. We'll add that to the... Um show note links if you could invite three personalities from the cold war period to have a few drinks with who would they be and what questions would you ask them so i'd probably have to have dr monica felton because she's a, a real character in my book um and hugely devices divisive and i'd i'd i just want to know what it what it was like um you know, living through um all that criticism going to north korea why did she go to north korea um, so I'd, I definitely want to, to interview her. Um, probably as well, um, Colonel Khan, who was, who was imprisoned, um, famously reticent man, um, but as I've said, you know, extraordinary as well. So, um, I think I'd, I'd want to, um, to know more about, um, his experiences if he, if he talked to me about them. Well, we're assuming that they will talk to you. Yeah. Here, oh, okay. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I've recently been to Prague, um, and so much Cold War history in, in Prague. Um, oh, yeah. But probably somebody like Vaclav Havel or someone, you know, um, you know, um, I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. Well, that's a, that's a great set there. We've, we've not had that set before. Okay. So, uh, like that one. Are there any books in English that you would particularly recommend for anyone interested in the Korean War? Obviously, the 50% exclusive Cold War conversation discounted Korean War in Britain um, would be top of the list. But what else would you recommend? There's some excellent military histories out there if your listeners are, are interested in um, learning more about, about that. So um, 
the official history, two volumes um, for, for the real enthusiasts. Um, it was written by a former prisoner of war, um, General Sir Anthony Farrah Hockley. Um, and that's available through a lot of central libraries and university libraries. Um, there's also some shorter summaries by uh, Peter Lowe and um, Callum MacDonald, some, some shorter military histories and political histories. There's some, also some excellent books, if you're interested, around prisoners of war. There's an excellent book by S.P. Mackenzie uh, on British prisoners of war. But there's also um, the book I mentioned by Charles Young um, uh, called, um, oh, I think it's called Name, Rank and Number, about um, American prisoners of war. Um, and the other book I mentioned about the, the UN by, by Robert Barnes. So, um, and I think there's also a, a very popular history as well by Max Hastings as well. So um, a number of avenues for your readers to explore. Yeah, there's a surprising number uh, out for there. For a forgotten war, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of your, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you have a, a library at home of books. What, what would you say is your most prized book that you have? So I have a book that was produced by the Chinese People's Volunteers, so the, the, um, the guards essentially guarding British and, and other, um, UN prisoners of war in Korea. And it's, it's essentially a, a propaganda book, um, but it's called Thinking Soldiers. And in it, um, Prisoners of war, including Andrew Condren, who, who opted to stay in China after the end of the war, um, talk about their experiences of prisoners of war. Um, and whilst, as I say, it is, um, it is largely a propaganda piece, it, there aren't many copies of it. And it's, it's, yeah, a real, a real precious, um, item that I, that I have. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I keep it very safe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know whether you could share a photo of, of a page of it yeah, or, of or something. Yeah, that, yeah. that would be. I'd just be really interesting yeah, to see what it what yeah. it looks like. There might be more copies out there than than I've uncovered, but this is. Um, yeah, um, your listeners might be able to track some down. But yeah, right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, film or TV series that would be a good factual or fictional representation of the Korean War. There's there's Mash, of course, that you mentioned, um, and. Some of my friends have mentioned, I don't watch it, but, um, Mad Men, I think. Don Draper is a, is a Korean War veteran, um, apparently. Um, wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but for me, I think there's a film that comes out, um, just after the war called A Hill in Korea. And it's based on a novel of the, of the same name. And it's about a national service patrol that goes wrong. Talking to veterans, it doesn't seem to have been at the most accurate of films. And, um, it's very sensational. Um, but interestingly, it's Michael Caine's first film um, out of national service in Korea himself. Um, and so he's got some interesting bits in his autobiography where he talks about um, this being his first film um, and his experiences with that. So um, I'd recommend it, even though it's perhaps not the most accurate representation. It's a piece of history itself. Well, I do. I think we do have a number of Michael Caine fans who listen to the podcast. So you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am. Yep. Uh, Grace underscore Huxford. Um, and I have a University of Bristol research page as well. So if anyone wants to know more about my forthcoming research or research that I've done before, um, just just have a look at if you Google me, my page will come up. Well, Grace, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. That's been really interesting, and I've, I've really enjoyed our uh, conversation. Well, thank you for, for having me, and, and thanks to your listeners for, for tuning in as well. Well, that's all we had time for, but don't miss our exclusive Cold War Conversations offer on Grace's book. 
Just search for the Manchester University Press website and quote the discount code podcast and you will get 50% off until the 16th of November. There's a link to the Manchester University Press website in our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage. If you like what you are listening to, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads of extra Cold War information and further discussions with our guests, academics, military veterans and other interested people. Just search for Cold War Conversations. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. Lastly, if you like what you are hearing, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.